Hello, everyone. On behalf of the monks from all of the ashrams, welcome to our presentation today about our monks' monastic order. My name is Brother Sevananda. I have the privilege to know so many of you, some I haven't met before, but I want to extend on behalf of all the monks their greetings and my own very warm welcome to our class today. Those of you who have the chance to attend convocation before, you might remember how announcements are made about separate classes for the men and women who might be interested in learning more about monastic life. And at least on the monk side, on occasion during the class we have, we'll, we'll give our presentation. And then at the end of the class, once in a while, a gentleman will approach us and in a somewhat sheepish way, he'll say, to tell you the truth, I'm actually married but I just always wanted to know something about the monastic order. And, and he actually would take his wedding ring off before he came in. Maybe he thought we'd be checking that at the door. And uh, so here's a chance that we're very happy to make a presentation for everyone. And some of you might also recall how at a previous convocation, our former president, Sri Mirlani Mata, in telling a similar story, said, now we're not trying to steal away any husbands or wives. And quite the contrary, marriage itself is a divine path. And very similar in some ways to the level of commitment that we make as monastics in our spiritual marriage. So for today, welcome everybody. We're happy to have you here and everyone is more than free to attend our presentation. And for which that reason will expand out a bit so that it will hopefully be not only interesting and enjoyable, but inspiring, and to give you that glimpse into our life here in the ashrams of our Guru, Paramahansa Yogananda. Now, this being said, what I've also found through the years is that every devotee has some place in his or her heart for the ashram. There's a certain longing that I've seen expressed so many times by our devotees for, oh, I wish I could be in the ashram. Or when they come and visit and have that pilgrimage here, they feel, oh, it feels like home. And I think there's a spiritual reason for that because I, I think there's a part inside each one of us that where the true ashram really is. In fact, the word ashram itself signifies not just an outer place where we come to strive for God communion, but even more importantly, that inner place of freedom from toil and trouble. And so I think we're all looking for that place of peace in our hearts. And along these lines, on the very first page of our Guru's commentary of the Bhagavad Gita, in fact, on the very first page of his introduction to his commentary, I copied out this. He says that the main theme of that great scripture is that everyone should be an adherent of sannyas, which he defined as a renouncer of that egoity ingrained through avidya or ignorance, that we might awaken in oneness with the pure cosmic consciousness of the Supreme Being, ever existing, ever conscious, ever new bliss. So that kind of sannyas sounds very good for everyone. And so the point is, in a sense, we know from our master's teachings, we're all following the same path of inner renunciation. We're renouncing all that which takes us away from God, that we might embrace those 
qualities, those thoughts, those behaviors that will bring communion with him. And our master spoke about this uh, inner renunciation, the spirit of renunciation. He was giving, when he gave a memorial service for Sister Ganamakta back in 1951, and he said this, he said, I have seen yogis in the Himalayas who live in caves and profess great renunciation, but all the time thinking of how to get food and fighting over firewood. That is why for a long time I didn't give you in the ashram robes to wear. I said, make your heart a hermitage and your robe the love of God. That is what makes a saint. Now, of course, for good reason, our master did establish these beautiful ashrams, not only as places of divine pilgrimage, but also as the spiritual foundation for his worldwide work and mission. And so it's a fair question to ask, what is behind these walls then? Is it concealing fights over firewood or something also real, but very, very beautiful? That aspiration that our Guru talked about in that service for Sister Ganamata, that true love for God that is in the heart. I remember a number of years back, we had just finished our commemoration service for Mahavatar Babaji in Encinitas, where we also have our ashram for our postulant monks. And it was around seven in the evening and we were walking outside and suddenly we heard this tremendous engine noise and all this dust and sand was being whipped up everywhere. And those of you who will have had the opportunity to have made a pilgrimage to our Encinitas ashram will know how the gardens and hermitage overlook the Pacific Ocean. And also perhaps how on the street side, uh, south of the ashram is a public park called Swamis that the city actually named after our guru. And so from that south side, just clearing the buildings as we're coming out of the, of, from our service, we saw of all things, a Navy helicopter coming in for a landing on the ashram grounds. And just maybe 30, 40 feet off the ground, just clearing the buildings. And where it came in for a landing was in that large field where, again, if you've had the opportunity to attend Indian night or some of the Encinitas temple functions, we have a, a large field of the ashram that is used for those events as well. And so it finally landed uh, the blades stopped whirling. There's about 30 of us monks standing there. The hatch of the helicopter opens, out come four crewmen. They had their uniforms on, we had ours. And one of the crew looked around as soon as he got out and he said, you know, I grew up around here as a kid and I always wondered what was behind these walls. To which one of the monks immediately said, if we had only known, you could have just come in the front entrance. We'd have been happy to have shown you around. And it so happened too, I remember there were a couple of teens from the Encinitas Temple there, all wide-eyed at the spectacle. And I said to them, and you think nothing happens in an ashram. And it turned out, just for the story's sake, what had happened, they were coming north from this Navy base that's south of Encinitas in San Diego. And they were just a little bit offshore, and as they were getting to the point where the hermitage looks out over the ocean, they saw uh, that there was an onboard instrument panel fire. And so they realized they had to make an emergency landing. They looked around, they saw this field, 
and they said they got down just in time. And when it was obvious that they were going to need to uh, repair, make some repairs to the helicopter, the pilot turned to us and, and asked us, what time in the morning do you begin your meditation? And after we told him, he turned to the rest of the crew and said, okay, we're taking off after that, he said. I have enough bad karma from disturbing everybody's peace here this evening. I don't want any more. And, of course, it, the whole incident got written up in the local newspaper, and the headline read, read something to the effect, Levitation at Self-Realization Ashram. And so I tell you, in a certain sense, it really is hard to describe what happens behind these walls. In a way, it's very similar to how our guru described life in his own master's ashrams, where the days there were infrequently varied. But at the same time, somehow they're also ever new, ever unpredictable. In a certain sense, it's not entirely far-fetched to say you never quite know when a helicopter might land. And I was thinking, why was it? Why is it so the same and yet potentially ever new every day? And I believe it's because of the guru. In our master's case, it was because of Sri Yukteswar. He never knew quite what to expect in the way of, of training, in the way of love from his master. And in our case, in our ashrams, it's because of our guru, Paramahansa Yogananda, who, although his body has passed, we know he's ever living, ever present, ever guiding, ever in charge, in control of the circumstances of our lives, of your lives as well as so many of you well know, if we allow him to do so. And in a way, I was thinking this also perfectly describes what we're trying to do as monks. And that is to follow in the actual footsteps of our master, not only inwardly, but outwardly as well, following in that path of sannyas that he himself followed. He said once Krishna soldiers were like Krishna, in a way, I like to think that as monks, that's what we are. We're master soldiers and also his angels. Yet with sword and shield, we're trying to cut away at our own ignorance and to the degree that we're able to help others do the same. And so I thought maybe it would be of interest to give a little history of our monastic order, our, the legacy of our order, where it came from and when and how it began. And you might recall in our Guru's autobiography, he talks about the ancient Swami order. And he said the origins of that ancient order of Swamis goes back, he said, to time immemorial. And how then it was reorganized in its present form centuries ago by Adi or the first Shankaracharya. And then fast forwarding to more recent times, we can recall also from the autobiography when Sri Teshwar was attending the Kuma Mela in Alhabad in 1894, how he was summoned to the camp of a master who, though he didn't know at the time, turned out to be Mahavatar Babaji, and how approaching this saint, who he said was unknown to him, the, the, the master at his approach rose, embraced him, and affectionately said, welcome, Swamiji. And how Sri Yukteswar said in protest, sir, I'm not a Swami, as if to Babaji uh, that made any difference. And uh, in fact, Babaji simply said, those on whom I am divinely directed 
to bestow the title of Swami, never cast it off. And Sri Yukteswarji said he felt instantly engulfed in a wave of spiritual blessing. And he added, smiling at my sudden elevation into the ancient monastic order, I bowed at the feet of the obviously great and angelic being in human form who had thus honored me. Now, a few years after that divine bestowal of sannyas, Sri Yukteswar was then formally initiated into the Swami order by a Mahant or well-respected head of a monastery in, of all places, Bodhgaya in Bengal, which is famous for another well-known renunciant, to say the least, the Buddha himself. And in fact, I, when I was in India years ago, uh, along with Brother Achalananda, who many of you know, we had the opportunity to visit that same monastery. And I had the chance to see where Sri Yukteswar would have been formally initiated into sannyas. And because that Swami who initiated Sri Yukteswar was himself part of the Giri or mountain branch of the Swami order, then our master and all of us who follow are likewise members of that Giri branch. And I like to think there's some connection, at least in a symbolic way, to the yogis of the Himalayas, those mysterious and remote mountains where they're known to reside. And I bring up this last point because, as our Guru explains again in his commentary on the Bhagavad Gita, we, like Sri Yukteswar and he himself, are also what our Master calls yogi swamis. Meaning, as monks, we have taken vows to live according to the high ideals of the Swami order. But as he wrote, we are also yogis striving for God communion as the foremost object of our spiritual efforts. And he proclaimed further, for those on the path I have followed, who also feel called to complete renunciation in a life of seeking and serving God through the yoga ideals of meditative and dutiful activities. I have perpetuated in the monastic order of self-realization fellowship, Yogoda Satsanga Society of India, the line of sannyas in the Shankara order, which I entered when I received the holy vows of a Swami from my guru. And interestingly, again, the Sanskrit name that our Guru chose when initiated by Sri Yukteswar was, as we know, Yoga Nanda, which he defined as bliss or Ananda through divine union or yoga. And so as mentioned, those of us here, the monks of all of our ashrams, are striving to practice those great yogic techniques of meditation that we have all received in master's lessons. But in addition to that, are striving to also follow in our guru's footsteps of complete renunciation, his outer footsteps as well. And part of that rich legacy and blessing is also the lineage of the great early disciples who first took up that path of sannyas in our master's society. Sister Gyanamata, Rajasi Janakananda, Sri Dayamata, Sri Mrilini Mata, Brother Nanamoy, Brother Bhaktananda, to name just a few. And of course, not the least of which is our current president, Brother Chidananda, as well. And I was thinking, you may have heard how uh, one can judge a guru by his disciples. 
I know we as uh, monastics, and I'm sure all of you feel similarly grateful that we have no shortage of renunciant examples to uh, look up to as well. So that's a bit about where we came from. But again, what is our life actually like? How might we describe it in such a way that you get that glimpse of what life is like here in the ashrams of our master and as monastic disciples following in those outer footsteps of renunciation? I think all of the monks would say the same thing, that if you want to get a really good idea of what life is like in our master's ashrams, all you need to do is read that chapter in his autobiography entitled Years in My Master's Hermitage. And the subsequent chapters that describe his almost 10 years in the ashram of his Guru Swami Teshwar. Virtually all of the lessons, all of the values, all of the principles on which our life is based is born again from that legacy of training and experience that our Guru received from his master, Sri Yukteswarji, and which our Guru then perpetuated, as he said, in his own ashrams as well. And first and foremost, that legacy revolves around meditation, that great privilege and daily blessing to be able not only to meditate alone in our room or cave, so to speak, but in the company of our brother monks during our regularly scheduled group meditations each day as well. And then out of that inner connection to spirit and the spirit of the life and to each other, then is that other great privilege and blessing, which is to be able to serve every day in whatever way we're asked this great work and mission of our Guru. And by extension, all of you are larger spiritual family and our larger, even larger world family as well. In talking to the monastics once, our president, Brother Chidananda, also spoke about these twin features of ashram life and said that essentially we have two purposes here. First and foremost, he said, is to become a master of meditation. I might pause here. Brother, as we know, always sets the bar very high for all of us, monastics, members, all of of the followers of our Guru. Although he said it's because the Guru sets the bar high and like him, he wants and encourages all of us to reach our highest potential. And so again, he said, we have two goals here as monastics. One is to become a master of meditation. A master, he said, of the science of Kriya Yoga. So that we can enter in, in a tangible and real way, into that transfiguring, transforming light and love and joy of the infinite beloved. So that each time we enter into meditation, it is with the consciousness that this is the goal of my life, my beloved God, to enter into your presence, to remain in your presence, to allow your presence, your love, your consciousness to utterly change me, utterly transform me. And then he said, the second goal flows from that, where he said that as we make ourselves receptive, as we become able to receive and able to become the vehicles, the receptacles of that light, of that love, of that joy, of that divine consciousness, that gives us the ability 
to serve. And he concluded our life, Guruji said, as monastics, is one of ceaseless striving for divine communion and also ceaseless service to God and to God in all. This, he said, is what we have committed our lives to. Now, it's, of course, in between those two ideals or in trying to live up to or achieve those two ideals where the individual challenges and lessons and learning and growth involved in that striving, those years and experiences we all encounter here in our master's hermitage. I remember when I was a young monk on the path, I was living here at Mount Washington at the time. And one day I was at my desk when the phone rang and it happened to be our then president, Sri Dayamada, who was calling for someone else in the department. But before I handed off the phone, she asked how I was doing. And almost before I even had a chance to answer, she said, just remember, as Master said, the spiritual path is like a razor's edge. And she gave me some other advice around that and uh, the challenges to look out, out for and so forth. And after we hung up after that, I was, I was on fire. I was like a spiritual ninja, so to speak, going around the ashram watching that I, I don't fall off that edge. And then it happened that a few days after that, Dayama called a satsang with all of the monastics. And in the course of her talk, and to my surprise, she started in with the same quote, saying as before, remember, as Master said, the spiritual path is like a razor's edge. And it wasn't so subtle, at least in my mind, but I was thinking, well, of course, yeah, Ma and I, just the other day, we were, we were talking about this. And so she started in the spiritual path is like a razor's edge. And then she paused for a moment and looked up and then she said, but I've never found it that way. And I remember sliding down just a little bit in my chair. Maybe we weren't exactly having the same conversation. But I made some notes after and because and, I wanted to think on that. And she went on to explain that, yes, in the beginning, it is like a razor's edge. After that initial enthusiasm perhaps for the path wears off and the real inner work begins, then, as she said, it takes a certain vigilance and discipline and awareness to form those new and good spiritual habits, as we all know. But she said, when our lives more and more begin to revolve around God and in trying to live according to those principles of love and truth, then after a while, she said, there is no edge. Our whole life becomes the path, like a wide open road. There is only, as Brother Chidananda likewise explained, just living for God, living in that presence, true ashram, free from that inner toil and trouble. I remember another time a group of, of us were out on some errands and, and as we were told that our master did on occasion, we also were given a chance to, as a group, to stop for an ice cream. And there we were, looking at the different choices and getting ready to make our selection. And we didn't think we were acting in an unusual way. We were just going about things as we normally do. But something must have caught the uh, attention of the salesperson who became very intrigued, either uh, with the vibration of the group or, or something about us in general. And so finally, they asked the monk who appeared to be in charge, said, 
I must ask you, I've never seen a group of people go about the business of ice cream with such concentration. With, to which the monk calmly replied, well, you see, we're trained to do everything with concentration. And the person seemed quite impressed with that answer. And we all thought that our master must have enjoyed that little exchange as well. So I thought I'd tell one last story that uh, ties these various thoughts together. And it happened in my earliest years after I entered the ashram and began my years in the master's hermitage. And the house brother at the time was Brother Primoy. And referring once more to the legacy of our monastic order, Brother Primoy in particular received the spirit and the specifics of ashram life direct from Sri Dayamada and Sri Rinalinimata, who intentionally shared the experiences and lessons they had had with the Guru and brought out the attitudes and principles connected to them so that they might be perpetuated into the future training on the monk side of the order. And of course, Mirali Ma herself did this on the nun side. And it turned out Brother Primamoy continued in that position, uh, helping the young monks with their early years on the path for the next 25 years. And so on the monk side, we had this tremendous continuity of, of life and, and principles connecting us back to master's time. And so much so that the spirit of that program in those early years continues to this day. And so back to the story, part of our duties, especially when we enter the ashram is to work in the garden or on the, on the farm so that we might have an outwardly simple life uh, in the hope that that inner chatter uh, might start to settle down and create space for that divine presence to unfold. But as we all learn here, being simple doesn't mean being a simple ton. And so one day after raking up some leaves, one of my fellow postulants happened to lean the rake he had been using up against a, a plant, a datura plant, which if you know, has these beautiful fragrant bell-shaped flowers. And not only did he lean the rake up against it, but he went away and forgot about the rake altogether and left it out overnight. And so as fate would have it, so to speak, uh, Brother Primoy himself happened to walk by uh, the next day and found this rake. And so the next time he was with all of us, and I can remember it was almost with a look of surprise on his face. He looked at us and he said, but can't you feel the life in that plant? And then he added, and then you wonder why you don't feel Divine Mother in meditation. I had just come in a little while before that, and I, I thought, now, that last part really caught my attention. Because I thought, now, how does leaning a rake against a plant relate to my meditation? It's just a plant, right? But then I began to realize, and thankfully more as the years go by, it's not just a plant. It's God. It's life. It's a living thing. And it's not that Divine Mother is angry at us, and that's why we don't feel her presence. It's because we aren't receptive. We're not in, able to perceive. We're not able to sense Divine Mother's presence in that plant, in life, within ourselves. I think it's similar to the story, again, if you recall from the autobiography, where uh, when Sri Teshwar couldn't perceive Babaji at the doorway, and how afterwards 
he realized and humbly admitted Babaji was there. But he said it was, he realized it was his own mental excitement that prevented or extinguished that perception. And so I came to realize in the ashram in those early years and later, and I think this is so important as devotees, so vital for each one of us. It's not that Master will love us more if we're good. He already loves us unconditionally. He couldn't love us any more than he already does. But if we're good, meaning if we're in tune with the laws of life and truth, then we can feel, we can perceive, we'll be receptive to that love that's already there. In other words, as he said, we don't have to earn God's love. We already have it. Rather, it's like Mirlanima said once, yes, his love is unconditional. But she added, we have to make ourselves unconditionally receptive. And that's our work, so to speak. And again, that's the monastic life in a nutshell, the aim of our life, to make ourselves unconditionally receptive. But the story and example of that poor little raked in and there, because Brother Primamoy continued, he said, and then what if one of your brothers might be needing to also use that same rake the next day? And will go to where it's supposed to be, perhaps in a hurry even, and won't be able to find it and will have to go all over looking for it. And so I remember he said, what it comes down to, my boys, is nothing more but nothing less than consideration for others, which means expansion of consciousness, which again, is what yoga is all about. And in fact, our guru himself said that consideration for others is actually a soul quality, which means, as it always is, that it's about love. And so our training here, so to speak, is, or attempts to be, on that level, that fundamental level of the soul. Connecting the deepest, most profound truths to the simplest, and seemingly most humble principles and activities that we perform each day, so that we might become those true peacemakers, those true lovers of God, lovers of all our brothers and sisters, lovers of all living things. And I think that's why and how each day is, on the one hand, largely the same, but on the other hand, ever new and potentially transformative inwardly. Because in the final analysis, it's on that level. Again, the level of the heart, the level of the soul, that we really change. Any of us, all of us. And as Brother Primo used to also tell us as young monks, that is what our lives in the ashram, and really as devotees anywhere, is really all about. Changing ourselves. And not again so that we will be loved more by some judgmental God that we forever have to please, but so that we can be open and receptive to that already loving, all-forgiving, all-merciful God that, as our Guru says, is more anxious than us to enter into our hearts and minds and to help us realize what and who we truly are. I can't see if you all agree, but I hope this is helpful and makes sense. Now, since part of our presentation today is also to provide some information for those eligible men, single men, who 
might be thinking of taking up life in the ashram or would like to learn more about the requirements or what steps they might need to take. Although we won't go into the details today, uh, probably the best way for you to get that information would be to just click on the link that you'll see below the video box on your screen. That will take you to our website and give you that information and also how to contact us if you wish to speak with us as well. And if you do, we'll be most happy to talk with you further. All right, now before we close, we thought we would also insert a short video that some of you will recall seeing, but which we thought was a wonderful opportunity to give a further glimpse into uh, what life is like in the ashrams of our guru. And again, those principles that lead to that change of character and from the little self to that larger divine self. And then I'll see you again when the video is over for a few closing remarks to our presentation today. To be a monk means to be someone who is filled with this desire to find God. In one sense, nobody thinks he's good enough to live this life. But on the other hand, nobody's asking for perfection either. The life is a process of, of working on yourself, and as long as you're willing to do that, that's really the only qualification. Why did I come? Well, everyone has their unique story. For me, it's a calling. I never saw myself becoming a monk. If you, if you ask my friends uh, where they thought I would be, it certainly wouldn't be in a monastery. You know, I was just an everyday guy doing everyday things, I guess. And then I went to a place called Hidden Valley which is an opportunity for male members to, to have retreats and experience the life there. And I was hooked. I just felt the, I felt the joy of, of serving something other than myself, of um, Yeah, I'd never felt anything like that before. Routine itself, it's, it really gives you uh, uh, peace and uh, a great foundation to uh, 
sort of build your spiritual life on. And uh, just, the, just sort of following with the group and the routine, the schedule that we have, it makes everything so much easier. Like being out in the world, trying to practice these techniques, you would probably have to use five to ten times more the energy and willpower and effort to actually do the routine that we do automatically each day. And, and that fact in itself is so helpful when you then later on sit down to meditate and pray and try to contact God within. Divine Mother, Divine Mother, help me to seek Thee. Help me to seek Thee. As the ever-increasing bliss of meditation. Thou come, just for once come to me. You know, when one is looking at the ashram from the outside, one has a certain perception. And when you go to Hidden Valley, that perception gets a little more concrete because you have first-hand experience of what an ashram is like, what the monastic lifestyle is like, the routine and so forth. But when you actually come into the ashram, not just living at Hidden Valley as a retreatant or a resident, but you actually enter the ashram as a monk, it's a whole different ball game, so to speak, where it, it dawns on you the purity and the, the sanctity of this lifestyle that you have embraced. You know, in theory I had a certain concept, but when you actually start living it on a daily basis, uh, it's overwhelming in the beginning because you realize that if I continue to live this way, the potential of this lifestyle to completely transform my consciousness is infinite. The first years of monastic life, it's training, you know, postman training, novice training. And uh, they are meant to give a, a, a practical experience of what living as a monk means. And an aspirant is thinking about taking this life as his own lifestyle. So they have an opportunity to come here and to experience it. not like a theological course in a college, you know, it's fully experiential from the very day to the last day. So monks generally live a rather structured life, and here life is very structured. There is a moment for everything. There are uh, two moments of, uh, two periods of uh, individual meditations, two to three periods of group meditation during the day. There is periods set aside for study, periods set aside for classes and periods set aside for recreation, sports, and of course rest, and periods for fun too, we have fun activities periodically. Personal life just the beginning, uh, and then there will be other, a few years as novice where the young monk will learn more. <laughs> I kind of remember when I was making that decision to come in and uh, it was a challenge to really make that final decision and, and take that step forward because I don't know if other people's experience but um, it just wasn't like a clear 100% like I really knew exactly what I wanted to do so I, I had to take a leap of faith I think and uh, you know muster up enough courage to just take that step and trust Master 
And so uh, how do you feel now? <laughs> no, I love Are you it. still leaping or have you landed one foot on the other side of the... No, I feel you, once yeah. you settle in yeah. to the life and you, yeah. you sort of get a few years here mm-hmm. and, you know, the experience sort of unfolds and you become, you know, it feels like your family, it feels yeah. like home. You know, when you're first applying, it, it just seems like a world away. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. trying to think mm-hmm. of, you know, applicants now. I mean, for me, it was just like, gosh, how would I get to that point, you know, to, to convince my family, my friends, quit my job, mm-hmm. and these are all big jumps to make. So I feel, you know, I feel for people that are thinking about the life. It's not easy. There's, it, in a sense, there's like rings of fire you have to jump through. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you just take little steps. You know, going to Hidden Valley was huge for me. Seeing other monks, you know, in action, going to a uh, conducted retreat and seeing a monk there. Oh wow, this, this person's just normal. The first time I went to Hidden Valley for six months, um, I loved it. I loved the community. Um, there's a lot of people my age doing the same thing. I hadn't had that in the world. I felt kind of like, in a way, a loner in the world. I had friends, but not people that I could really have that deeper friendship with. And at Hidden Valley, um, I think I found that in a large part, and that was a big inspiration for me to take the next step and uh, apply to become a monk. I didn't apply that time. I took a, I, I left for a while, and uh, one day I remember um, riding my bike, and all of a sudden it just like hit me, like, you're missing the community. Like, you had been so happy at Hidden Valley, and now you're back out, and you're doing things you like, but you're missing that spiritual community. And uh, I didn't fall off my bike, but it was like, uh, <laughs> you know, like, wow, like, okay, I have to go back to Hidden Valley, and then... I did shortly after. It was kind of just like a trusting that strong feeling. And um, yeah, from there, I lived there for about a year while I was applying to come into the ashram. I'm still here. (laughs) (laughs) The monastic life is in essence a journey within, an interior search for one's own divinity. And yet, it's not a withdrawal from life, but ironically, the means to actually live life fully and give back to the world and others the best and highest that we all aspire to and are capable of as complete human beings. Yes, I would definitely say that if someone is thinking about the monastic life, and whether it's worth the effort or not, it has certainly been worth the effort in my lifetime. It has completely changed my state of consciousness. In fact, to be perfectly honest with you, I have to think sometimes pretty hard to remember how I was when I first came to the ashram. As we draw closer to God, and we feel His presence, we feel His love, we feel that inner peace and joy, we cannot but be a happier person, happier individual. And that's what we are after. Well, I think I can honestly say I'm a very different person than 14 years ago when I entered the ashram. I think in every way, physically, mentally, spiritually, I have grown. Uh, Physically, I'm healthier because I eat better, I exercise regularly. Mentally, I have better attitude, I feel. Uh, I'm able to stay more calm and more content and more happy despite outer conditions. I'm less moody, 
and I'm able to get along better with people. And spiritually, also I feel I've progressed because there is a focused effort that's happening on a daily basis in the ashram community on an individual level and on a collective level. So I feel that uh, I am a new person. So we hope our presentation today was of interest and helpful. And we feel it a privilege to have been able to share something of our life here in Guruji's ashrams, which are your ashrams as well, as mentioned, these divine places of pilgrimage that he established for all his devotees and friends who have the opportunity to come here to feel and attune to his vibration that he left behind. And of course, while as monks, our lives belong to him and to his worldwide work and mission, they also belong to all of you as well. And I was thinking if someone were to ask not only what is behind these walls, but who and how we might describe ourselves, I would, I would say that we're a sincere group of devotees, disciples of our Guru who love him, who wish to become like him, and in striving to become one with God, to unfold a little bit more of what we are and who we are as souls, a little better, a little more each and every day. And that's a goal that keeps us pretty busy here, day in and day out. And as was mentioned by one of the monks in the video, you don't have to be perfect to be here any more than we have to be perfect to be disciples and devotees of our Guru. In fact, as our beloved Mirlima said once, if we strive with heart and soul to cultivate those divine qualities, then she said we are already a perfect devotee in the eyes of God and Guru. On our way, she said, to becoming a perfected devotee. Do you see the difference? We're already loved and are most lovable. So we bow to you, we're inspired by you, and we look forward under the wise and, as we all know, most inspiring guidance and direction of our president, Brother Chidananda, to new and further ways that we might all meditate together and have satsanga and to serve side by side this great work of our master so that each one of us might one day unfold the true potential of our divine selves. So let's close now by listening to a short excerpt from our master and may you feel his loving presence with you now and always. Jai Guru. I first emphasize make your hearts a hermitage. And I know from your eyes you couldn't hide it from me that your hearts are truly the hermitages of God and the hermitages of divine work. That pleases me most. If you are ashamed of God to wear a robe, then you are wrong. I am proud of my robe. But I am more proud of what is in my heart. That's why I say the most important thing is to make your heart a hermitage. And I am sure of your hearts, of many, many that are present here. And them I have given 
to God as the bouquet of souls. That is the greatest present I can give to God. For God has everything except us. Those who don't want to surrender themselves to God, God can't have them. But through my interceding and through your response, you have become of God. 